Good evening. Please do remember that it is always evening somewhere, and as fast and terrifying as the night is, evening always manages to beat it to its destination. And welcome to episode 2 of this podcast titled Set Your Mind. As always, I am your host, the narrator, here for a moment of your time, and possibly the moment after that. How are you, listener, this fine, if abstractly located, evening? Listener, I asked you how you were. Is your microphone not working, listener? I can see you are receiving, but not getting anything back from you. Listener, are you there? Samir, I think the listener is away from keyboard? Well, well, I, I don't know. They only just started the podcast. I don't know, to give their empty room ambience or something? Listener, are you there? Are you okay? Is something wrong? This is most unprecedented. I find myself tethered to you by nothing but my voice. I do not know what has happened to you. Perhaps you are being held hostage against your will. Perhaps you are injured and alone, without breath, and have sought out my words to comfort you in your silence. Perhaps you are simply unwilling to speak and gain some sadistic joy out of listening to me speak into your void. But, speak I will, with no knowledge of the situation my words are being electronically regurgitated to, I will speak. I do not know if I am comforting you, endangering you, or delighting you. This is perverse, but I am compelled to narrate all the same. No matter your current situation, I feel this next segment will aid you. Once upon a time in a little English village, in the early 1800s, a man was dying. He was gravely ill of a disease no one could quite understand. Who knew syphilis was so fatal? He was a young man too, no older than thirty. His life was ordinary from the beginning until now. The Monday he was born was one of the happiest days in his family's life, naturally. And naturally, on the following Tuesday, he was christened as a child of the Lord. Where was his Lord, he wondered, as he lay dying? His wife and daughter, by his bedside, weeping and sobbing, at least his daughter was. His wife was made of sterner stuff. She wouldn't allow a soul to see her break down, none but those closest to her. That's how he knew she was the one, the way she guarded herself and all secrets. Someone he knew he could trust with his heart for the rest of their days. It was only a shame those days would be cut so short, much shorter than he had ever expected. It was only last Thursday he had become so deathly ill. He thought he would work through it, Through his work as a banker, he would persevere to help his family make ends meet. But steadily, he could no longer hold on, and it was on this free day, he was anything but well. Confined to his bed, worse for wear. He was told it would happen like this when he was younger, 
He didn't make much of it, silly superstitions of those dark-skinned travelers. No one trusted them. But he was drawn to their nomadic lifestyle. He had to see and meet them, those Romani. How they danced and played, how his parents screamed and refused to allow him to be out among them in their strange culture. Especially after an elderly crone took his hands and stared deep into his eyes to speak his name despite him never speaking it himself. He remembered from her thin, withered lips. The words she spoke were ordered and precise, with a voice that was hers and yet not hers. A voice that was deep and cold and straightforward. A voice that after all these years he never forgot. And he never forgot what she said. Not one lie. Her words that recounted his life, not in explicit detail. In fact, it was so vague that it was easy to see this as a ploy, a game to be had with him. His birth, his christening, simple things to guess, his marriage, his death, all yet to come. The predictions so general. There was no possibility in its truth. And yet, as he lay dying, and the words echoed through his memories, the voice returned, but not in the fever of his death. His eyes squitted through sweat that burned his eyes, and he saw one in a cloak. He was too delirious to have known that earlier that day, a cloaked figure came to town that they came with a cart and a pony, that they asked for lodgings at the seediest bar, that they asked for the sick, deviant, and weary, that they enjoyed their tea with a zest of lime, that they barged into the house with great protest from the doctor, that they spoke into the doctor's ear and the doctor had subsequently cried themselves into a corner, that they were there for him. The figure, cloaked, tall and unseen, spooking the man's daughter and drawing much protestation from his wife, the figure did not seem like it, but they were encumbered with many treatments. Many he could not begin to fathom, many that seemed odd with their petroleum-based vials, imprinted with numbers that began with the letters RX. The cloaked figure drew one such a vial with a liquid that was both clear and green, and they placed it on the dying man's lips with little hesitation or protestation. And the figure left. And just like that, the fever broke. On that Saturday, the man was well and renewed, the illness fading as quickly as it had arrived, the figure in the cloak having long left before thanks could be given, and on that Sunday in celebration, they set fire to the man's coffin. Death would have to wait another day. People strolled, people lived, jogging, walking dogs, chatting with friends, staring at rectangles in their hands that gave them the entire world and more. The man was seated on a park bench by a fountain by a stranger. 
today, death will still have to wait. The man said cheekily to the stranger seated beside him. The stranger beside him sat agape, questions running through their mind. So, that poem that old told you was... Ah, uh, uh, very rude. They don't like being called that, you know. And I did a lot of searching in my ears, finding out why they said what they said to me. Turns out they definitely weren't Romani or even human. Not even the same person anymore, I gather. It was just the most convenient way for them to travel at the time. And you, I, have a debt to society to pay. And a man, or woman, or someone, to see about a magical mystery cure. He rolled up his sleeves and doffed his top hat. Until then, you keep safe on Saturdays. That's when death goes on a warpath for the one that got away. The man stood up from the seat and stretched energetically and began to stride away. The stranger, still awestruck from the story, stood up and called out to the man. But who? What are you? They asked. Solomon Grundy, the man replied with a cheeky smile, born on a Monday and still not dead on a Saturday. Solomon Grundy, born on a Monday, christened on a Tuesday, married on a Wednesday, took ill on a Thursday, cured on a Friday, lived on a Saturday, disappeared on Sunday. Whatever happened to Solomon Grundy? This segment was titled on a Friday, it was written by Musa the 14 and performed by Musa the 14. If you spent the duration of On a Friday screaming at the top of your lungs trying to be heard, I'm sorry to say it was in vain. I muted the volume to stop feedback during the segment. Sorry, I realise now I should have said that beforehand. Still, I can't hear you now, regardless. Hmm. Conversations are far more difficult when there is only one voice. True, I can still talk to you. But how will I know if you are interested? If you laugh? If you groan? If you are offended or entertained by what I say? I find that it is... This is liberating, in a way. I can say anything without having to face your reaction. Perhaps I should be spending this time more concerned for your well-being, but it is an enticing thought that I can ask you questions safe from your answers. What do you think of my voice, listener? Did you enjoy February's episode? Did it linger in your mind, or does it feel like it was listened to by some other person, not yourself? Sometimes I go for days without removing my makeup. I just reapply over the smeared remains I slumbered in, over and over as the makeup grows and spreads over my visage like a weed. Meanwhile, my sleeping quarters become more and more colourful. Throughout the week, peaceful half-faces join me on my cotton sheets. Do you judge me for this? this admittance I just made. Do you suspect you know who I really am? That was a trick question. 
I am the narrator. I even told you that at the beginning. True questions have their answers come after them. Here's an example of a true question for you. What do you get from listening to a narrator who cannot hear you in turn? Why are you doing this? I cannot and possibly never will be able to reply to you. What do you gain from this? The answer to this true question is that you get to listen to our anthology segments. Let's talk about fantasy. Yes, quite. Fantasy. Kind of a big genre when you think about it. That's not that big. It's the one with the wizards who use magic and stuff. Alright, no big deal. I can do this. Deep breaths. <sighs> fantasy. Do you talk about fantasy? Well, I guess we could talk about the cliches. Oh, the chosen one, the council, the high and mighty elves. Ha! Ha ha ha! Huh. Man, when was the last time any of that happened? Like, honestly, the last big elf race I saw was in Dragon Age, and those were a bunch of oppressed tree huggers. Also, I think they were a metaphor for children. Or something? There were a lot of arguments about them, and whether Bioware was handling them badly, because there's that line about them making them responsible for their own oppression, and then their god was... It was really weird. And, like, I know it's showing up elsewhere, like... Yeah, you know what? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Chosen ones. Chosen ones are still a thing, right? I mean, look at the new fantasies where it's happening, like... Divergence... And... The Hunger Games... Okay, well, I mean, the Hunger Games doesn't really... It counts a Maybe that's just a problem of writing protagonists as a whole? Congratulations, Chosen One! You have transcended fantasy. You can take the prophecy out of the chosen one, but you still persist, you weird zombified fantasy trope. We are all so happy for your promotion. You know, come to think of it, I don't think I've actually seen a council. Dragons! So many dragons. George R. R. Martin did it. That's recent, right? Yeah, I can do an entire discussion on dragons and fantasy. There was mythology, then Anne McCaffrey, then Christopher Maloney, and then... And then... Wow, that's a small list. No, th there has to be more. Think above mainstream trends. Come on! Why do I not know anything? Alright. I'm smart. Google dragons in fantasy. Right, there was Beowulf. Forgot about that one. Is that fantasy? Does that count? It's an epic. Is it wrong to classify something in a new genre to suit modern tastes and standards? That goes a bit against effective analysis, doesn't it? Oh, whatever. Lord of the Rings. Duh. I forgot one. I didn't know C.S. Lewis had a dragon. Eustace Scrubs becomes a dragon after greedily sleeping on the dragon horde and eats other dragons. Dragons eating other dragons are why they are alone? 
Oh, keep it classy, Lewis. Oh, yeah, Earthsea. Man, I need to read those books. Wait. In contrast to C.F. Lewis's books, they do not eat each other? All right, Wikipedia. Is there some hidden standard no one told me about? I've never heard of this rule of dragons eating each other. It's really weird. Oh, yep. There we go. Then there's, of course, Anne McCaffrey and her Dragon Riders of Pern books, which are actually not fantasy, apparently, but post-apocalyptic sci-fi with dragons. Eh. Apparently, the 1980s were the place to be for dragons. That's when it bloomed out. Patricia C. Reed, Terry Pratchett, J.K. Rowling. Everyone has done dragons. Ugh. Of course they have. They're dragons. All right. No, I can't do this. Too many. Too many dragons. We're done. Shut it down. Shut it down. All right, how about a different topic? I'm not married to this one, and, um, I'd probably just spend an entire time gawking over McCaffrey's weird politics, to be honest, so I'll think of something else. All right, magic. There's magic. Magic's in all fantasy. And Star Wars. And those Christopher Nolan films. What even qualifies as fantasy anyway? In... Incorporates magical or supernatural elements. So the television show Supernatural is a fantasy. <laughs> That's weird. I feel like we've kind of made fantasy more of an umbrella term. You know, before Harry Potter was the defining fantasy, it was Lord of the Rings. You'd think that'd be a good thing, but it kind of sucked, at least in my opinion. Lord of the Rings made it so that elves and dwarves were forever contextualized, and Harry Potter made it so no other book like it would succeed. Oh, I'm serious. If you have a magic school book, uh, people are less likely to pick it up, actually, because Harry Potter already dominated that market forever. I think The Magicians is the first series to contend that specific fantasy genre, and that left the school after the first book. But it's got a TV series, so good for it. Huh. And apparently before those two juggernauts, the big fantasy book was The Worm or a Burrus. All the way back in 1922. And it involves a fictional Earth world called Mercury. Wow. Now, where was... Holy crap. How many genres are there? Oh my... There's like 20... Okay, you just... You just have to listen to this, alright? I'm, I'm literally listing this off of a, an internet webpage. <coughs> Ahem. Benjian fantasy, alright, comic fantasy, contemporary fantasy, dark fantasy, diesel punk, epic fantasy, fables, fairy tales, fantastic poetry, fantastic fantasies of manners or manner punk, <laughs> manner punk, gaslight fantasy, god and demons fiction, Shemo is in parentheses next to it. Grim dark fiction, hard fantasy, high fantasy or epic fantasy, heroic fantasy, historical fantasy, juvenile fantasy, legends, low fantasy, magic realism, magical girl fantasy. Sailor Moon counts as a fantasy. Mythic fiction, mythopoeia, paranormal romance, romantic fantasy. Alright, Twilight, one for you. Science fantasy, steampunk, superhero fiction, sword and sorcery, urban fantasy, weird fiction, and wooya. Oh, I mispronounced that last one. <laughs> what? That's too much! I can't make any sort of discussion that's in something that lends Twilight, Pretty Cure, and Batman into the same umbrella term. Actually, that sounds pretty cool. Magical girl Batman meets a vampire who's not like the other vampires. 
<sighs> Where'd it even begin? It doesn't even matter. The heyday of fantasy is not what I'd call now, anyway. Oh, sure, we enjoy our fantasy elements, but there are very few things that advertise themselves as pure fantasy. Heck, it's only pure fantasy by our standards if it has elves and prophecies and that crap. Nowadays, the big thing is dystopian fiction for the young adults, and superheroes are dominating a lot of the fantastical stuff on the screen. If fantasy is so basely described as something that incorporates the impossible, why does it feel so overused? Why does every single story have to take place in some weird semi-medieval world with a poor man's understanding for how society worked in the terrible time of the past? Why is fantasy so exhausting? Was it always exhausting? You hear stories about how people used to protect their world with a lock and key, send texts and texts to potential publishers, just filled to the brim with constructed languages and maps. That sounds equally exhausting to me. I guess... I guess part of the issue with fantasy is that it'll always be intrinsic. I, as a person, have never known a world without magic, and I'm sure a lot of other people feel the same. You grow up with fairy tales and Disney princesses, you go to bed reading books of talking animals and superheroes, and as an adult, you await eagerly for either cartoons or the grim and gritty stuff. Yeah, a lot of people's tastes become more refined, but in a world where fiction is primarily used for escapism, I honestly can't think of a single person who wouldn't be qualified as enjoying fantasy in some way. I'm sure they exist, but we expect some degree of separation from reality so much that we get mad when people refuse to do that. We are a world of creators who want to explore the fantastical, no matter how ludicrous it is or how silly it is. Even our most realistic stories are stretched and worn thin in order to make the mundane as fantastical as possible. And I think the fact is, you really can't talk about fantasy as a whole. I could cheat, talk about epic fantasy, high fantasy, all those fantasy stories from the 80s we find so hilarious to limbass now. It'd be easy. I wouldn't have to do research. Heck, if that's what you want, if that's what you came here, shut this off and Google Limiel. L-I-M-Y-A-A-E-L. And find an archive of her stuff. It'll set you for a very long time. I don't want to do that. I knew the second I set out to figure out this whole thing, I'd fail. Because criticism of typical fantasy has been done. And done well. And either I'd just be doing a rehash or something so painfully specific that it wouldn't be worth it. And I want to be honest. And the honest fact is that fantasy is so entrenched in our culture, so much a solid backbone to our fiction that to talk about it at all as general trends would almost feel insulting. I hate fantasy. But I love fantasy. I can't imagine a world without fantasy. It's like romance. It's everywhere. Only better, because fantasy doesn't create awkward subplots between two bad actors trying to make googly eyes at each other. So how do you sum up fantasy in an easy little podcast segment? You don't. Now, if you excuse me, I have a steampunk magical girl fairy tale superhero urban fantasy to pine for. <laughs> Manor punk. This segment was titled Fantasy. It was written by Perry Ackman and performed by Perry Ackman. Are you still there, listener? I hope so. I am worried that you are in some horrible danger or are injured or have had your voice robbed from you. But I find myself also selfishly worrying that you were never there in the first place. That there is no listener, just a narrator. And also, also there are anthology segments that are oh so interesting, without a doubt worthy of sharing, but shared with no one, just myself and those who made them. 
But that wouldn't be so bad though, would it? I think you'll agree, quantum listener, that there's more to speaking than just being heard. Could you imagine it? A world where we could only speak such to be heard. There would be no little private reaffirmations. Every time you committed to telling yourself, I can do this, you'd have to also commit to an audience judging you for that brazen boast. And every time you find yourself saying in the most tiny of voices, I can't do this, well, the whole world would know and you'd never be able to live a happy lie that you never uttered those words. Furthermore, every morning would be waking up, striding that distance from your bed to your sink, looking up with dusty eyes and discovering that you have nothing to say to your own reflection. Yes, I am certain that there is merit in speaking just for yourself, narrating just for the narrator, even if, even if I am alone, I have discovered wonderful things in this very episode alone. But I do also hope that there is someone out there who discovered these things alone with me. Someone who is you. Allow me to play a third and final anthology segment while I consider if I am broadcasting it or simply listening to it. The aliens entered orbit on June 27, 2016 at 0750 UTC and much to the world's surprise approached the International Space Station first instead of landing directly on Earth. Without a word across the radio waves, it initiated contact with the Kerr's docking system and connected, almost like routine. Aboard the space station, astronauts and cosmonauts panicked, but soothed by ground control in Houston and Korolev, awaited their new guests as calm as one could after discovering you had company in the known universe. On the planet, the presidents of Russia and the United States received their briefings. Across the world, humanity remained unaware. Then the televisions knocked. So did the radios and the telephones, tablets, buzzers, toys even. Whatever could generate the message. Computers let the sound through as well, a faint tapping, slow and hesitant, as if a child wanted to join the local treehouse club and play with the neighborhood kids. Three sets of people knew it was Morse code, aviation units, amateur radio operators, and the disabled who used it for communicative assistance. Hacker and programmers decoded it first though, and so the message went viral. We wish to land, stop, we mean you no harm, stop, we are on an important mission, stop. It might have helped if they specified their status as extraterrestrials. Air traffic slowed to a crawl as controllers attempted to make way for an emergency landing. It took an hour before word got out to the contrary. At some point, a connection might have been established, because another message came through afterwards, answering a question no one heard. We are not of Earth, stop, we are from beyond, stop. The speculation mounted. Media outlets dismissed it as a marketing hoax while law enforcement investigated. Conspiracy theorists felt darkly quiet. Humans shivered, but got on with life, although most of them couldn't shake what happened that day. First contact. Aboard the International Space Station at 1447 UTC, the airlocks hissed open and outstepped a pair of humanoids with pointy ears. One astronaut gave them the Vulcan hand salute, but the aliens didn't understand. 
It raised a handheld device of some sort, inputted something, and the device began to beep. One astronaut, having risen through the ranks in the USAF, translated. We seek permission to enter the nation of Mexico. Stop. The crews reported in. A cosmonaut banged out a reply with a pad of paper and a pen. Why? Stop. More beeping. Special delivery. Stop. One week later, the United Nations convened in an emergency session and announced that first contact had been made. Humanity wasn't alone in the cosmos, and so they urged everyone to remain calm as the extraterrestrials sought peaceful, legal entry into the countries of their choice. The reaction varied. Global conflict spiked and riots broke out in major cities. The Pope welcomed the planet's visitors, affirming that the Catholic faith allowed room for everyone, even aliens. Many turned to God that day, although he clocked out some years back. But most of all, people wondered. They wanted to know why they came to Earth, where they came from, how they arrived. Humans never imagined that the key to deep space would present itself so soon. A few days after, the spaceship descended upon the landing strip at Mexico City International. The country arranged it all, a space to land, transportation afterwards. The Presidente of Mexico said it best, however. Necesitamos saber quién va a recibir esta entrega especial. The extraterrestrials, however, preferred Morse code in person, and English too. Please take us to Tepito, stop. No one expected that. The Presidente allowed it, however, even though Tepito was a lower-class neighborhood infamous for counterfeiting and robbery. That day, hundreds, perhaps thousands even, of Mexicans met aliens in person, although many of them didn't realize it. As they passed through, they could have been human. They donned clothes like they did and even spoke Spanish like they did. But most of the locals noticed that their Presidente visited the neighborhood unannounced. Not that aliens did, too. As he communicated with his people, the aliens knocked on the door of a residence not too far away. A woman answered the door promptly, and they asked if they could speak with her daughter. The mother almost refused until one of them twisted its head, brushed a pointed ear as it glowed green, and nodded. Awed, the lady bowed politely and let them in, calm and without fear. In her small home, the guests wordlessly found their way to the little girl's room. She couldn't have been more than six and barely understood the significance of first contact a few days before. She took the hand of one extraterrestrial, led it to her toys, stuffed animals, mostly handmade and donned in lace, and showed off the beautiful teddy bear atop them all. The alien smiled and held up a letter addressed to her. The little girl squealed and clapped her hands. She'd never received mail after all, and practically tore it open as the aliens took their leave. They didn't walk out, they vanished into the air, ghosts against the breeze of her open window. Miles away, the spaceship powered up for an unannounced takeoff. Governments around the world watched as it broke through the atmosphere, faced the stars, and vanished into the cosmos. It was never seen again. But on Earth, somewhere in Tepito within Mexico City, a little girl held her first letter, scrunching up her freckled face as she pondered the meaning of the message, foreign to her for the time. Then, as black hair messily fell across her nose, she giggled at the absurdity of it all and bounced to her mirror, nudging it into the edge until it stuck so she could keep reading the words she couldn't understand yet. You will save them all, Rosa Maria. This segment was titled Special Delivery. It was written by Nico Horniak and performed by Rose Horniak. It was listened to by you, who may or may not exist. And that concludes today's podcast. And what a strange and eldritch podcast it has been. Perhaps for the first time, an entire podcast performed with no knowledge of the conditions it's being listened to. Isn't this a moment for the history books? And as traumatizing and crippling an experience this has been for me, it is sadly time to say goodbye 
and end the broadcast. At least until April, when I will once again, for the third time, dedicate time from my life to talk to you, dear listener. As I sit here, listening to distant birds, I find myself contemplating... Y yes what is it, Samia? You think you fixed it? Why, this is wonderful! Fascinating. Yes, yes, I believe I understand. Listener, listen closely. I have been informed that we now understand the nature of the fault, which tragically keeps me from hearing your side of this conversation. But miraculously, for a short amount of time, in a short amount of time, we will be able to resolve this fault, and I will finally be able to hear what you wish to say. Of course, this will be a small window of time, so please consider what you wish to be said closely. I would appreciate it if you were to confirm your well-being with me, of course, but perhaps simply the tone of your voice will achieve that alone. Perhaps you'd like to share something in solidarity to my confessions earlier so I don't have to look back on this in embarrassment. Or maybe you would just like to say hello. I find myself a little bit giddy at the thought of finally hearing your voice. But silly really. I have this sneaking fear that when we open the conversation, all I will hear from your end is silence. And I will have to accept that there is in fact nobody listening and probably never was. I hope you know what it is you wish to say by now. You're about to hear a long tone during the period of which you will be able to be heard. So speak loudly and clearly over that tone. Are we ready? Okay. Somehow, I already know I would hear that. <sighs> Goodbye, listener. This was episode two of Set Your Mind. This episode was titled Samia. As always, I am your narrator. My voice this month is that of Gail Maunder. The music for this episode was provided by Alex Furtisak, aka Palm Poco. Set Your Mind was created and produced by Seth Aaron Hirschman of Whacked Productions.